Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to, <clears throat> again, invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 22. Last week, we saw, in my humble opinion, I think one of the greatest sections in the, all of the Bible, certainly in the book of Proverbs, on how the Bible will impact your life and change your life to be what God wants it to be and how it will change us. And I ended last week kind of <clears throat> summarizing everything that we said, and I gave you ten great principles about the Word of God, how that uh, it's so good for us to take the principles and how it will change our life when you apply those. And today, I want to move on today and look at Proverbs chapter 22, and uh, we're going to talk about verses 22 through 27. And here again, we'll see some really good, solid principles that we can leave here with today and take with us and help us in our own lives. Let me read it for you. And then uh, John Christensen, when I'm done here, if you'd be prepared to ask the blessing on the service today. Rob not the poor because he is poor, neither oppress the afflicted in the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and spoil the soul of those that spoil them. Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go. Least thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. Be not thou one of them that strike hands, or of them that are sureties for debts. If thou hast nothing to pay, why should he take, take away thy bed from under thee? John, if you'd ask blessings today, I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Now, we're going to take these verses one at a time and, and, and going to look at them. I, you know, if you would read this, you would say, wow, you know, how do you get a, an hour or so preaching out of something like that at Prim Silty? pretty, you know, mundane, but I guarantee you there is a lot in here. And first of all, we're going to do as we always do. We're going to lay out the passage doctrinally, and we're going to look how it applies in a prophetic way. And then we'll come back to the inspirational application and apply it to our own selves. And of course, the historical application pretty much takes care of itself. <clears throat> now look at verse 22, and it starts there. Rob not the poor, because he is poor, neither oppress the afflicted in the gate. Now, let's talk about it as it deals doctrinally or prophetically, first of all, here. Obviously, the poor here will be the nation of Israel. All through the Bible, the nation of Israel is, is portrayed as <clears throat> very poor. Uh, you're going to find that in Matthew chapter 5 through 10, where he lays out the what we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount. In reality, it is the constitution of the millennial uh, kingdom and that structure it's going to be. He talks about the poor in spirit. He talks about Israel being poor and being afflicted. And, um, and it, it, it's been, uh, you know, all down through history, uh, God's nation has been taken advantage of by all the other nations, every one of them. And, and in particular here, as we're looking at this, it's talking about the affliction of the Antichrist to the uh, poor people of God or the nation of Israel in the tribulation period. But uh, all down through history, uh, they have been persecuted and been taken advantage of. And these verses will go along with the one I gave you a couple of weeks ago in Proverbs 22:16, just a few short weeks ago, that said, He that oppresses the poor to increase his riches, and he that giveth to the rich shall come to want. And we commented on that at great length when talked about it, but I want to show you how that these two kind of go together here. Somebody has taken advantage of the Jew. 
Someone is using what they're going through and their being and the struggles that they're having through their adversity. A great example of this back in the Old Testament would be in the book of Exodus itself. Bible says at the end of Genesis that the nation of Israel, uh, you know, they find themselves down in Egypt. And the Bible opens up the book of Exodus where it says that there arises a new king in Egypt, the new not Joseph. And he begins to persecute them. And here again, they're poor, they're slaves. He makes them slaves. They're afraid that they're going to rise up because they're populating and getting to be a great a bunch of people. They're afraid they're going to overtake them, so they make slaves out of them. They put them down into the brick furnaces to make bricks. And for 430 years, Egypt, Pharaoh, who is a type of the Antichrist in the Bible, he profits and takes advantage of them as they go through that terrible time and that terrible ordeal before God in the book of Exodus brings them out under, under Moses. And of course, the, the principle is the poor will always be easy prey to oppress or to rob uh, and take advantage of because of his poverty. It's just that simple. He can't always afford a lawyer, so you can, and you got more money than he does, and you can, you know, you can put him under. He can't bribe a judge or a city council member. Uh, he can't bring social pressure to bear on his behalf. He's pretty much stuck. You know, I mean, uh, he's stuck and at the mercy of the rich guy unless somebody stands up for him. I always like to watch when I watch the news. I think they all do it. Channel 9, Channel 5, you know. They always have <clears throat> where if you have an issue you can't get resolved, you bring it to Stan Kramer and he'll go on there and he'll tell your story and then they'll go to person and try to resolve it for you. I think that's a good thing. I really do. Uh, you have what we call affirmative action groups today. They're always sticking up for the guy who can't stick up for himself. I think that can be a good thing. Sometimes it gets <clears throat> out of whack a little bit. But, uh, you know, my point is that if you're poor, as the verse is here, it's easy for to be taken advantage of because you don't have the wherewithal to, to support yourself and to defend yourself. Look at verse 23. Now, here's the upside to it. For the Lord will plead their cause and spoil the soul of those that spoil them. Now, that verse shows how that God cares for the poor. And this is such an important concept, and it's one that most people never see and understand. And I want to take a moment and explain the concept to you as best I can. Here's a picture. We know it's the nation of Israel, doctrinally, but here's a picture of God pleading the cause of them that cannot plead for themselves. And it's God's nature to have compassion on the little guy. It's just that simple. God is not pressed with all that we have. God is not pressed with the millions of dollars that people have in the bank. God has always had a thing for the little guy who cannot stand up for himself. When he showed up at the first coming of Christ, one of the greatest criticisms that was leveled toward him is he spent all his time not with the scribes and the Pharisees in the upper uh, seats of the, of, the, uh, of the meeting places. Their criticism was that he always spent time with the publicans and the sinners. He was where, they, he was where the need was. And you look at sometimes Psalms chapter 12, verse 5, where it says, in essence, that he sets the poor and needy in safety. Look at Psalms 18, some, 9, 18 sometimes. Then he says that God will not forget uh, the, the needy. In Psalm 70, verse 5, he says, God will be their deliverer. In Psalm 72, 12, he says, he will deliver them who has no helper. And in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 4, scores of places throughout the Old Testament, 
It says, And thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge. God will take up the cause of, 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 of people uh, who cannot take up the cause themselves. John chapter 16, verse 21 in the New Testament says that their, 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 their sorrow will be turned into joy. Proverbs 23, 11 says, God will plead their cause. And you know, as a church, and this is really important, as a church, this is what our mission needs to be. We need to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. Most churches just cater to the rich folks. If you don't have a certain income bracket, you're out of luck. But, uh, but Jesus always took care of the poor. He always had cared for the poor. We go down to restart, as you know, the first and third uh, Sunday of the month. Most of you go with us down there, and, uh, you know, Will's got a team, uh, John Hill's got a team, uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, Phil Christie's got a team, and, and, uh, and Darren's got a team, and then Danny and Zach have a team there at Restart. And Gary and his team go down, and they cook hot dogs. They're down there. It's a team effort all the way around. I have been asked before why I continue to do that, because you don't see a lot of results. We've had people from time to time come to church here, but they don't last very long that we meet down there. It's a different world. And me, the guy who likes to squeeze every drop out of everything and don't like to waste a lot of time doing things where there's no coming back for the Lord, I can understand why somebody would ask that question. But I want you to realize that I don't do restart in the street ministry to get anything out of it. I do it because I love the Lord, and I know if the Lord Jesus Christ was here on Sunday afternoon, he'd be down there with us. That's where he would be. He cared for the poor. I want the blessings to come along with that. So when I go down and you go down and we're down there giving them a cold drink of water, giving them a hot dog, giving them whatever you do and witness to them and talk to them, you know what? That's what Jesus would do. Most churches today, they're so above all of that. I told you at Christmas time how we were down there putting a party on for the kids, and I was out doing my deal, and I kind of run layers on between all the teams, make sure they got what they need. And I was sitting there, and this big $300,000, $500,000 bus pulls up right there in front of Restart. And an armed guard comes out, and all these people trickle out in their suits and in their diamonds and in their mink coats with their little kids, and they run over to the fence, and they're putting gloves and little things on there, and then they all get back in the bus and take off. I thought I, thought I was on an LZ when, you know, in a helicopter land, and the support team goes out and lays down a perimeter so you can get in. They were afraid they were going to be, I don't know, right down there in town, and they probably could have been. But you know what? I guarantee you, they went wherever they went after their, with their little lattes and their little camelate, latte, 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 whatever you get, drinking their tea with a little finger up, you know, and talking about what a blessing, how they helped the poor. You didn't do anything except soothe your own conscience. That's all you did. You didn't do anything. I don't go down there. I don't go down there because I'm expecting to get anything back. I'm going down there and doing that because Jesus loved the poor. And I don't think this church, with all that we have, with all that we do, with all the truth that we put out, I don't think we can have a proper balance without loving the things that God loved, that he loved the poor. So I go down there. You go down there. The second reason I go is because it's a good reality check for me. 
It's good to see what God has done in my life and, 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 and where it could be uh, if it wasn't by the grace of God. Amen. Amen. And, I, and I want to tell you something. I'll give you a little bit of advice. In life, don't go too far in life without a good reality check. So, I mean, I understand it. But this church here, we always need to stick up for the little guy. We always need to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. We always need to be there for the downfall and the downtrodden. We don't have rich people in this church. We, uh, we, 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 we just got a bunch of common people. Old Mel Sabaka told me one time that Christianity, the real ministry, is just one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. And we're all beggars this morning. All of us are. And what we deserve is hell, but what God gave us, we need to give to others. And I'm telling you this morning, I'm telling you, it's one of those things where this church can never lose sight of the fact that there was a time in our lives when we had nothing. There was a time in our life when we were wretched, we were miserable, we were broken, we were busted. And we can't ever get to the place in our lives that we get so big with all of the light, light shows and all of the praise bands and all of the, all of the smoke coming out from the, underneath the podium. Uh, some smoke will be coming out here in just a few minutes, but it won't be the kind you're thinking of. And, and all of those great things, and forget the fact that Christianity has never changed from when God put it in effect in the book of Acts. It's just you and me taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. Most of you were that way when you came in. Most of you were busted. Most of you were broken. Most of you had no answers in life. Most of you had bad marriages. Most of you had issues in your life that you were struggling with. And there was nobody out there that cared for you. Nobody out there that would put their arm around you and help you get where you wanted to go so desperately. But the Lord did, didn't he? No one ever cared for me like Jesus. Now, doctrinally, all these verses I've given you will be God standing up and pleading the cause for his people, the nation of Israel. The Jew, during the tribulation period, going through the adversity, the oppression, and the robbery. And a good example of this in history, if you want to put history to it, would be back in 1942 to 1943 in World War II over in Poland, Warsaw, when the Nazis began to round up all the Jews. And they put them in, and most people don't even know where the word ghetto comes from. We think it's in Chicago or New York or maybe even in Kansas City. The word ghetto was used a long time, not the way we use it today. And what they did was that they rounded up all the Jews and put them in a certain part of the city and then walled the city up. That was the ghetto. It's called the Warsaw Ghetto. There was another one in Czechoslovakia. They were all through Europe. And what they did, they contained the people of God in in these ghettos. And then as they were ready... They told them they were going to relocate them. They put them on a train. They went to Auschwitz or they went to Treblinka or Sobibor or they went to one of the concentration camps. And when they did, everybody went in and just took whatever they wanted out of their homes. That's a good example of what he's talking about here in history. In the face of great adversity and infliction, a poor, hated people who have been taken advantage of all down through history. Now, I got to tell you, just to keep it even. It's their own fault. God sent them a Messiah. God sent them. God sent them the King of the Jews. God sent them a Deliverer. 
and he's killing down here, and they wanted nothing to do with him. They crucified him, and I'm going to tell you something. When they put him on that cross, when Pilate brought him out there, and they said, shall I crucify your king? They said, we have no king but Caesar. He says, you still want me to kill him? Let his blood be upon us and our people. Oh, God took him at their word. And for the next 2,000 years, brother, they made those choices, but on the cross of Calvary. Right before he dies, he looks up and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. God gave them another chance. God says, I ought to wipe them out, I ought to kill them. But you know what? Because of my precious son hanging that cross, he asked me to forgive them. I'm going to stick up for them, and I'm going to get them through. But they're going to pay the price, but I'll honor that prayer. I'm telling you. You know, and when it comes to the church, you and me, Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 11 are the two greatest chapters in the New Testament for you and for me, understanding what our attitude should be toward the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 11, verse 28 says, As concerning the gospel, they are your enemies for your sakes. But they're the the, the election of the Father for God's sake. God says they're his people, so we are supposed to understand that. But oh, they're hated. The devil hates them because of the fact that they get the land that was back his in Genesis 1.1. Devil hates them because Christ came from them and Christ is going to be the king. So in Revelation chapter 12, Bible talks about in verse 3, the great red dragon. And 12.4, it talks about uh, Israel bringing forth a man-child, Christ. In 12.6, it talks about the, the devil persecutes that woman, tries to, tries to kill that child and she flees into the wilderness. 12.13 says that the devil persecutes the woman. 12.17 says and the dragon was wroth with the woman and made more with the remnant of her seed. He hates Israel. Now inspirationally, this will be a great principle for us as poor sinners on the way to the lake of fire. And God seeing our helpless state and being taken advantage of by the world system, being afflicted by it. Every time I think about what God has done for me in my life and what he's done for so many of you in your life, I go back to, to Exodus chapter one, uh, chapter 1 through chapter 10. And I go back and I, I read that story how that, that the nation of Israel, God's people, were put under the bondage of Egypt and how Egypt's the type of the world. And how he showed them no mercy and how he persecuted them. For four generations they were down there and many of their moms and their dads and their uncles and their grandfathers died in Egypt. And the Bible says that they cried out and God heard their cry. And God sent them a deliverer. Not deliverer was Moses. Moses came down and, and let them out. You know, I don't read that story without thinking of this thing in my own life and probably in your life. Because there was a day when every one of us was under the bondage of Egypt, the world. And they persecuted us. They hated us. They, they, we, 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 we served them. We loved them. And yet they, they, stood, they stamped on us and they beat us and they, they wanted to destroy us. And one day, all of us, we got so fed up we couldn't take it. We cried out. God sent a deliverer. A greater than Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he come down, and just as Moses let him out, 
Our Heavenly Father led us out through His death on the cross. We're not under the bondage anymore. We're not under the persecution anymore. Unless you just want to be. Most of God's people remind me of the little boy I counseled one time years ago. His mom brought him in because he kept hitting himself in the head with a hammer. He had lumps all over his head. And I said, son, you don't have to do that. Why do you hit yourself in the head with a hammer? He said, because it feels so good when I stop. (laughs) And I asked God's people, why do you continually allow the world? You're saved. You're on your way to heaven. You let them persecute you and do the things and the relationships and the circumstances you get into. Because it feels good when you stop for a while. Then you're right back into it again. I've had people in this church... In my whole ministry. They're like a farmer's almanac. You can plant the crops by them. They'll come into church for two or three years and, you know, oh, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to make this. Nobody's going to do this. And four or five times they come, they start to get, and they go so far, and then the world pulls them back and off they go. You know, I do not understand. I understand a lot of things. But I don't understand how, once you really understand the price that was paid for you and for me, that you could not stand up for yourself. You could not defend yourself. There was nothing you could do, and God came down and heard your cry and got you out of this world. Why in the world would you want to go back into it? That God would plead the cause of me who I could never plead my own cause. Oh, that was me. Do you ever analyze why a man or a woman won't get saved? It's a real science to it. I call it salvation 101. The mindset of somebody rejecting Christ. And it's simply because that person, male or female, is so busy through their own self-righteousness pleading their own cause. And my friend, I want you to know something. As long as you or any man or any woman, when it comes to your soul and your eternity and God, as long as we will plead our own cause, you'll never get justified by God. Job chapter 31, we find Job defending himself. This free friend showed up and they're persecuting him. And he's defending himself in chapter 31 so much Then in chapter 32, he crosses the line in verse 14, and he falls into unrighteousness, and that becomes his sin. Romans chapter 4, verse 5 says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. God in Christ will plead your cause as an unsaved person. He'll plead your cause as a saved person. But before you're saved, he'll stand up for the poor. You know why? Because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do we? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that we, through his poverty, might be rich. We were poor. We were wretched. We had nothing. And we could not justify or defend ourselves. And the aristocracy of heaven, the riches of heaven, became poor 
And you don't have to be poor this morning. Why do some of you, why do some of you save people today? Just hang on to being poor when you don't have to be. Why do you have the misery and the heartache as a child of God that you had before you got saved? Why is that? Because it feels so good when you stop. You say, what's the solution? Get a bigger hammer. And God can only justify the sinner. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago by looking at him through the blood of Christ as an unsaved man. And realizing that on the cross his son said, Father, forgive them. I know he was talking about the nation of Israel. I know he was talking about the Roman Empire and all the people who didn't understand it. But if you wasn't thinking he wasn't talking about you and me in an unsaved state. Because if we'd have been there, we'd have put the nails in his hand and been holding a hammer. God can only justify the sinner and defend him before Almighty God against his adversity. When the sinner, you and me, ceases to defend himself and turns the whole matter over of our defense over to a greater mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And he'll stand for us when we can't stand for ourselves. Oh, I was poor. And my adversary was so rich, the world system, and it wanted to destroy me. And I myself could do nothing. I couldn't defend myself. I was, I was, un, I was unworthy and undefendable. And the world system was robbing me of happiness. It was robbing me of any joy. It was robbing me of any peace that I might have. It oppressed me with sorrow and drama and heartache. And then one day, he heard my cry. Me, you, who was undefendable. And he came down and he stood up for you and for me on that cross. When he put those nails in his hands and his feet, it was for you and me. When that Roman soldier put that spear in his side and the water and the blood came out, he took that for you and for me. He stood and defended you and me, who was undefendable. And today he's seated to the right hand of God the Father. And every time the accuser of the brethren walks into the throne room, comes up before God's throne with Jesus sitting at his right hand and the devil says, did you hear about Bob Alexander today? Did you hear about, about Zach Smith today? Did you hear about Alex Smith today? And they said, yeah, his name popped up here a lot. Did you hear about so-and-so and so-and-so? And as the devil begins to bring against them a rallying accusation, the Lord Jesus Christ stands up and he says, Ah, Father, I'll stand up for him. Amen. And God the Father says to the devil, Shut up and sit down. And the Lord says, Yeah, he's right. They are all of these things. But you know what? I defended them when they were undefendable. I stood up for them when nobody else would. Now they're in me. Hey 
And if the devil wants to knock you down or persecute you or talk about you, since you're in Christ, you got to go through him. That'll stop him. That'll stop him. Greatest story in the Bible that illustrates this incredible principle is found in 2 Samuel. The whole chapter, really, 1 through 30. And it's the story of a man named Mephibosheth. Most people blew through that story and never stopped to see the impact that it has about what we're talking about today. The name Mephibosheth means breathing shame. And, and, and maybe you don't know the story, but Mephibosheth was one of Saul's sons. And when he was born, the, the lady that was the nurse dropped him. And he was lame on his feet for the rest of his life. Saul is now dead. All of Saul's sons are now dead. Mephibosheth is now a beggar. He hasn't bathed in months. He hasn't changed his clothes in months. And David, a David, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, David <coughs> asked a man in his court by the name of Ziba. And Ziba in our story will be a type of the Holy Spirit of God. And he says to Ziba, is there anybody left of the household of Saul that I may show mercy to? Ziba says, yeah, there's Mephibosheth. David said, go fetch him. Now I want to tell you something. David had every right to kill him. Saul was no friend of David. The sons of Saul was no friends of David other than Jonathan. I mean, there was, there was an absolute hatred. Saul tried to kill him over and over and over again. And David could have looked at it as, this guy, I got to eradicate that whole line of Saul. And he could have had his soldiers went down there and kill Mephibosheth. When I read that story of David saying, to Ziba, the Holy Spirit of God. Is there anybody left of the house of Saul? John 8, 44. We are, you have your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When I read that, I think of the day that God on the throne said to the Holy Spirit of God, Is there anybody down there left of the house of the devil that will follow me and love my word? And the Holy Spirit of God said, yeah, Bob Alexander. Yeah, you, your name, put your name in there. Amen. And when he talked about Mephibosheth, David said to the Holy Spirit of God, Ziba, go get him. And there was a day in your life, there's a day in my life, when God looked down inside your heart and saw something that nobody else saw. We were in the wrong family. We couldn't defend ourselves. We were undefendable. And God's Spirit said, go fetch him. The greatest day in your life and my life, the greatest day in your life and my life is the day that God's Son on the throne said to the Holy Spirit of God concerning you and me, go fetch him. I'm not just saved this morning, I'm fetched. Ziba goes and gets Mephibosheth. And he brings him to the king. You know, I know Mephibosheth for sure thought David was going to kill him. 
He thought for sure that he was bringing him in to settle the old accounts with his father Saul. Oh, but grace. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span to say to you and me, go fetch him. He bring Mephibosheth in. He put his hand on that crusty old head that hadn't been washed in hair that was stringy and matted together. And he said, don't be afraid, Mephibosheth. Nobody's ever going to hurt you again. Nobody's going to kill you. Why, as a matter of fact, I'm going to make you one of my sons. And I'm going to set you in my home, in my palace. And you're going to sit at my table. And come and dine, the master calleth, come and dine. You can feast at Jesus' table anytime. And we are going to eat the bread of the king continually. You know what God did? God looked at you and me when we couldn't defend ourselves. God reached out to you and me when we couldn't make it on our own. You know what the job of this church is filled with people like that? It's to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. We could criticize people all day long. We could point out their faults all the time. We could go back in their history and, and have a laundry list of things that they did that were wrong. And if you compared it to your laundry list, they probably would have been too far off. But that's one thing. You don't look at your list, you look at the other ones. When it comes to this church, when it comes to a real church, when it comes to the Bible, there are no laundry lists. It's the blood of Christ. It's the fact that we were undefendable. It's the fact that we were unsustainable. It's the fact that nothing in this world could fix us. I could not plead my own cause. And God came down and pleaded it for me. Wow, that's me. David stood up for Mephibosheth. The job of every Christian in this church is to get in love with that book, fall in love with what God is doing here, and then spend the rest of your life standing up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. Bringing them along. David defending him, even though his family was David's worst enemy. And you and I, we're Mephibosheth. That's a picture of us, totally undefendable. And no one to plead our cause. And my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, my David, came down to take up my cause and bring me into his house that I may sit at his table as one of his sons. Oh, and I'm eating the bread today, and I'll tell you what, oh, 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 Mephibosheth was lame the rest of his life. Did you ever notice that? He got to be king's son. He got to eat the bread, but he always was lame. You know why? That's a picture of you and me. No matter where we go, we're still sinners. But every day he got to sit at the table and eat the king's bread. Oh, I'm a sinner and I got my problem. But I want to tell you, I'm living in the tall cotton today. I'll tell you what, I got, we got the book. We got what God has given. We got each other. We got, we got those of you who are here just like me that you were undefendable. God came down and defended you. Now it's our job to take care of the others continually. He came and took up my cause and he defended me when I was totally undefendable. When everybody else threw me under the bus, when everybody else hated me, when everybody else wanted to destroy me, he was busy taking up my cause, even though I didn't deserve it. He's my mediator between man and God, the man, Christ Jesus. And if you're ever going to get salvation, 
If you're ever going to come to the point in your life where the Holy Spirit of God comes to fetch you and you sit at that table, you can't defend yourself for anything. Your self-righteousness and all your good works will do nothing. All the great things you've tried to endeavors in life that you thought was going to cut you some slack with God will not. If you're ever going to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you're ever going to come to him to the place where you get him to defend you, it's simply going to be nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I claim. It's going to be just as I am without one plea, but oh, thy blood was shed for the old Lamb of God. I come, I come. And you have here this morning, and if you're listening to my voice on the YouTube, I want to tell you something on the authority of the Word of God. You'll never get saved or out from under the oppression and the robbery of the joys of your life until you quit justifying yourself and defending yourself and simply let Christ do it for you. And you're coming to Him as your Savior. <clears throat> we run into it all the time. <clears throat> and the more you know the Bible, <clears throat> the more you learn the Bible, the more idiotic some things people teach about the Bible is or <clears throat> this idea <clears throat> this idea that it's propagated today <clears throat> that you can lose your salvation. You gotta be an idiot. Or you gotta be so lame when it comes to the Bible that you don't you're so dumb you don't even suspect anything. You're like a bat backing in backwards. You can lose your salvation. <clears throat> you know what that means? That means there was a time when you earned salvation. Somebody said, well, he did something that, 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 that doesn't merit salvation. I've never done anything in my life that merited my salvation. <clears throat> How can God take away something from me that I didn't deserve when he gave it to me the first time? And he knew what I was. It wasn't like the foreknowledge that God didn't know where you and I were going in life. Know our mistakes. It wasn't like that God said, well, he did what? Well, pull that back from him. How can God take something for us and say we don't deserve it when we never deserved it when he gave it to us? We were undefendable. I'm as undefendable now as I was back then. If it wasn't for him, I'd be sunk. So would you. Now look at verse 24 and 25. <clears throat> Make no friend with an angry man. Well, I'm angry this morning. Don't want to be my friend. <clears throat> And with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his way and get a snare to thy soul. <clears throat> now again, doctrinally, let's look at this verse. <clears throat> this will be a warning to the Jew not to make an alliance with the Antichrist. And you see this all through the Old Testament. The Bible talks about it in Proverbs. We've looked at it, how he flatters with his lips, how he makes a false alliance in Daniel. How he brings a false uh, peace and safety. And what he's saying here, don't accept his false friendship with Israel. It's going to be a snare under your soul. The devil has a deep-seated anger and hatred for God's people. And I told you why. They're going to get his land that he once had. They're going to get the throne that he once was on in the city that once was here, Jerusalem. And all down through the Bible, the history of the Bible, you saw the devil trying to stop it. I mean, when Abraham was called out and God gave him the promises, 
The devil immediately steps in and with Abraham gets him to take Hagar, bring in Ishmael. And for the next, what, 5,000 years, that race of people does everything in their power, even to this day, to wipe out and destroy God's people. One little bad choice with eternal consequences. We saw it with Jacob and Esau. How Jacob, you know, stole the blessing from Esau. Esau hated him the rest of his life. And the Esau guys become the Edomites. And they work to try to destroy the nation of Israel. God wrote a whole book in the Bible in the Old Testament against the Edomites, the book of Obadiah. The cruel, unbelievable punishment of the captivity in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 with Nebuchadnezzar coming up and taking the southern tribes and Shennacherib coming down and taking the ten northern tribes. Oh, what a bloodbath it was. When Nebuchadnezzar finally got into that city in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, I'm telling you what, they had held him off for three and a half years in a siege, and it had been one mess after another. Finally, when the siege ended and they broke down and went into that city, they butchered everybody. They were throwing little babies off the 50-foot walls, throwing them up and catching them on spears, cutting their heads off, cutting their hands. It was absolutely incredible. But it wasn't done then. Then we have the Roman Empire. There were a series of the Gentile nations. Rome goes into power about 100 B.C. And she begins to take over the world and she persecutes the nation of Israel. And the devil uses her to kill their own Savior, their Messiah. <clears throat> he tried to kill Christ in Matthew chapter 2, Herod. And all down through history, 4,000 years of it, 4,000 years of it, we see nothing more than history than the devil's deep hatred and anger toward the people of God. And finally ends in Revelation 12 and 13, 14 and 15 in the tribulation itself. This verse is a, is a great one, inspirationally. Now let's talk about that for a moment. We'll get the doctrine out of the way. Now we can get back to some preaching here. Inspirationally, this verse is a great one to illustrate how that we should pick our associations very carefully. The people we allow in our lives. First, let's talk about anger. You know, we, get so, we have so many angry people in our world, and we hear about anger all the time. Anger with husbands against their wives, wives against their husbands, anger with people, parents to their kids. Uh, anger, 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 anger. Anger management programs everywhere. <clears throat> We forget in the middle of all that that anger is a God-given emotion. Not all anger is bad. It's a not bad thing when you have it in a Bible context. The Bible tells us that God gets angry. In Psalms 106, verse 32, he talked about God being angry at the water of strife with Israel. In Exodus 4:14, he says, The anger of the Lord kindleth. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 10, with a mixed multitude, the Bible says the anger of the Lord was, was, was kindled. Uh, you know, in, in, in Matthew chapter uh, 3, verse 5, and Luke chapter 19, verse 45, when Christ went into the temple and he threw out the money changers, in, in uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 5, it says that he was angry with them. And the definitive verse on angry in the Bible, now you want to get this. I always give you definitive verses. Everything will come back to a definitive verse. The definitive verse in the Bible on anger will be Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. Where it's talking about he that is angry without a cause is guilty of the judgment. So anger with the right cause is okay in a biblical cause. Now, I'll throw this out to you. Uh, this shows you about your new translations that some of you just love. 
you know, in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, it says uh, Jesus Christ was angry with his brethren. Bible says, defines it here in Matthew 5, 22, that he that is angry with his brethren without a cause. So when you're NIV and you're ASV, they just absolutely take out without a cause. And it simply says, he that is angry with his brother is guilty of the judgment. And by doing that little switcheroo, they make Jesus Christ a guilty sinner over there in Mark chapter 3. And you just go right along with it. You know why? Because you're of your father the devil, that's why. And in Christianity, there's some things a Christian should be angry about. I'm just telling you. There's some good causes for some anger in Christianity. I'm an easygoing guy. I am. I don't get upset with much, but I'll tell you right now, uh, and I take a lot of flack for it, but there's some things that, as a Christian, as a pastor, I get angry about. Never you guys. I mean, you guys can screw up all day long. I'll never get angry with you. I think you're stupid sometimes, but I've been stupid too, probably more than you. I never get angry at you. There's no reason to get angry at you. We just work through things together. But as a pastor and as a Christian, there needs to be some things as you grow. And maybe right now you're kind of a non-Christian. You say, I don't know what to be angry at. Okay, take some notes down and you'll have five things to be angry at here when you leave. Now, you'll come to it in time. But I'll tell you what, I, I love the Bible. I love that book. I don't know where I'd be if it wasn't that book. You know what makes me angry? When somebody takes the Word of God and changes God's Word. When somebody steals the Word of God from God's people. When somebody puts a book out that's called a Bible that takes the blood of Jesus Christ out of it that saved my soul that I would never have been, been defended without that? And you want to make Jesus Christ a guilty sinner? You want to put Jesus Christ and the devil in the same boat back there in the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel? Those things anger me. I'll tell you something else that angers me. Sin angers me. You say, well, I'm sorry. I'm not talking about your sin, my sin. My sin angers me. I get sick and tired of sinning. I mean, I, you know what? If there's one thing that I'm going to be happy about when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, it's going to be a hallelujah day, is I'm finally going to be in a place, whatever I think, whatever I do, whenever I say, is going to please Him. Amen. To me, that's heaven. Because I'm having a time of it today. Had a time of it yesterday. And if the truth be known, I'll have a time of it tomorrow. But I hate sin. Sin disrupts the most perfect thing I ever had. I believe what He did for me. I love what He did for me. And honest, with all of my heart, I love him and he gave me everything. And you know what? When I step across that line and do something stupid, when I know better, I'm angry today. Amen. I'll tell you something else I get angry with. This is a personal thing. I get angry with unbiblical preachers. The highest calling on this planet, without a doubt, is to preach the Word of God. And I've got a host of you young men in here that can preach probably as good as anybody or better in this city, probably the state, maybe even the country. And when you preach, you preach. You're taught to preach. You're taught to preach the truth. And I'll tell you something. I, I, just, I, I get angry at the fact in Christianity when there's so many people hurting out there, when there's so many people, if there ever was a time in the history of the world that we needed the truth preached, it's today. And we won't preach it. We all have our private agenda. We want big churches. We want light shows. We want praise bands. We want this. We want that. We want all the smoke and mirrors. We've got, look at our church. We got everything. Yeah, everything but the truth. And I get angry at that. Now, you don't see me at 7-Eleven picking in with a sign. I stay to myself. 
I don't, I don't, I don't get involved in that. I don't care. I don't, I don't, you don't see my blogs on a, my face or your space or in your face or whatever those things are. I don't do that. I don't take up those causes at all. I have one thing that I do. That is to make sure that the people that God gives me gets the truth. And then I take what I've got in my truth and put it into you and you'll take it into somebody else. They'll stand and fall at the judgment seat of Christ on their own. And so will we. But I'd be lying if I didn't make me angry. I'll tell you something else makes me angry. The latest in church in general. This milk toast, mushy. I mean, I mean all these pastors turned in their BVDs and got underwear with lace on them. I, I mean, they're, they're just a mess. They're such milk toast, don't want to offend anybody. Well, I can't preach this in my sermon because this family will leave or these people will get mad or offend this person. Let me tell you something. I love you. I love you to death. I do anything in the world. But if the proof I preach offends you, that's on you, not on me. I'd much rather have you mad at me than God mad at me at the judgment seat of Christ. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, the Bible talks about the seven things that God hates. And it makes me angry that those are the seven things that most of God's people love. So righteous indignation, anger with a cause, is good. Just make sure you're angry about the right things. <laughs> but again, most of God's people will never follow the principles on anger. So they get mad, they get angry at, and angry with preaching. Well, he yells too much. And up in heaven, they're saying, he doesn't yell enough. He's too loud. He's too uncouth. He says things that are, that are, <coughs> that are not culturally correct or politically correct. So they get mad at preaching, hard preaching. They get angry at it. They get, they get, angry, at, they get angry at truth. They don't, nobody wants to hear the truth today. We live in a dream world. We think that the Christianity we're part of, that we're okay because we can do everything the world does. And you've got churches today that will tell you that. They'll tell you it's okay to social drink. They'll tell you it's okay to gamble. They'll tell you it's okay to do this or it's okay to do that. It's not. It's not. What's missing in Christianity and the ladies' church is a separation from the world. We now have a Christianity where you can claim to be a child of God and live like the world. I haven't met a sinner in 20 years. They get angry about a real Bible. You want to find out what somebody's anger, want to watch their blood veins pop? Just start talking to them about a King James Bible being the absolute Word of God. If they got a pacemaker, they're going to need a new battery. They're going to go into a cardiac arrest. They're going to have a spitting fit. Now, you that are here all the time, we're just a simple church. Uh, we'll never have a, a big building with a spire on it. You know, it. This is it. And I like this. This is my home. If I die, I want my service preached right here. And you can come by and ask me Bible questions, and I'll give you the answers. <laughs> I love this place. Somebody, I, I've had, uh, when, uh, when, when John Hill's daughter passed away, uh, and uh, they had the service here, there were some people from a couple other churches that, 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 as far as I'm concerned, they only came over because they wanted to see where they didn't care anything about John or Jan. And I watched them. I just stood in the corner. And when they came down the steps, it was husband away. 
I'm thinking to myself, you know what, you idiot? There's more truth in these walls than you had in the last 25 years of your life. And it isn't because of me, it's because of you. We're just a simple church. But I'll tell you what, and this church is unlike any other church in many ways, but one in particular. You can't pretend here very long. You can't. We have them come in all the time, and that's why we have a door over here and a door here. You just pass right on through and go out the secret exit. You can't pretend here for very long. The Holy Spirit of God will root you out. And it always is that way where you have truth. I, I never, I, you know, I've dealt with people for 47 plus years. And they'll all tell you their best story when you first meet them when they first come to church. And I, there are certain people I believe it. Like you guys from, I believe everything you tell me because you're good people. And I believe when you tell me you're, where you, we had our good conversation, I'll buy that 100% because I see your family. I see you. I see your love for the book. But we'll have people come in and they want to they impress me. And they'll start saying, well, I was this and I'm that and all that. And I just, I just say, okay, 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 okay. I never listen to what somebody tells me. I just watch what they do. It is about what you say. It's about what you do. You can't pretend. And that's why, you know, and you, you come here and the truth will hit you. And it, we all have issues. Anybody who comes in this church... On a scale from 1 to 10, we all got issues. Show me have issue number 1. Nothing big. Show me have issues number 5. A little, little more complicated. Some of you have issues number 10. Pretty serious. And some of you, you're off the chair, then the meter's broke, and the gas is running out of the cylinders. You got some serious problems. You know what this church will do for you? Not me. Not the preaching. I'm a nobody. I mean, I could put any 40 guys up here could do what I do. You know, I'm just a, a, you know, I'm just a monkey with the organ grinder. God's grinding the organ. I'm the little monkey. And he just throws me some peanuts every once in a while. You guys, you guys are my peanuts. I'm nothing here. I'm nobody here. The longer we go on, the less I'm valuable to you. God is raising up some men and some women here and raising up my uh, people here that that'll, can take a stand and do it. And a thing that I, you just, but I'm telling you. When everybody came in here, God allowed you to come here for one reason. Because there were some things in your life that you had to change on a scale of one to ten. You one to five to six to seven to eight people, you change it. You get ten and beyond and you come here for a while and you don't want to change. So suddenly, we're the problem. 250 of you here can be wrong and one person is right. Of course, that's stupid. I like it that way. I've always said that my style of ministry, you either love me or hate me. You'll never find somebody who says, well, I kind of like Bob. No, no, you say, yeah, he really saved my, get, get, saved my life, saved my marriage, saved my this to that, and I love him to death, and he teaches me the Bible. Oh, I can't stand that guy. He's the worst guy on the planet. I like that. Right down the middle. That's the kind of church I want. Well, I, I kind of like old paths or I don't kind of know. You either love it because of what you get or you hate it because of what you get. Okay. We're buddies. Let's go get a cheeseburger afterward. Me and you. A whole crowd of people. 
of God's people who were angry at God because they didn't get what they thought they should have gotten in life. That God won't allow them to live their life and do what they want to do. So they get mad at God. And we never stop and could think. If we got what we really deserve, we'd all be screaming our lungs out in hell this morning. If you got what you really deserved, you'd be screaming your lungs out in hell this morning. And the best advice you could ever have, take or follow or apply, is to stay away from people who are angry for the wrong reason. And it's been said that you can tell what a real Christian is and all about by what angers them. That is so true. Verse 25 says, Lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. Being like the people you have, uh, you hang out with, you hang out with wise people, you're going to be wise. You love, hang out with people who love God, you'll love him too. You hang out with problem people, you're going to have some problems too. You hang out with fools, you're going to become a fool. You hang out with people who are angry uh, with, for the wrong reason, you're going to get anger too. It's just that simple. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, Evil communication corrupt good manners, and it will. In the nation of Israel, they, their issues went, always went back to the mixed multitude. Back in Numbers chapter 11, the great chapter on the mixed multitude, the Bible says that it really angered God. Because every time he tried to do something with the people that were his real people, this mixed multitude that they kept socializing with, bringing into their life, bringing their world, dating having a relationship with, who had one foot in the world and one foot who were playing the game, kept pulling them down. Anger without a biblical cause will always get you off balance and be a snare to you. Now, I think anger is a good thing in a lot of ways. When I get into a, I, I've been into talking to cults before, you know, uh, anger is a tool you can use. Because if you want to get the advantage on somebody, there's an old saying, it goes like this. He who angers you controls you. And there's a lot of truth in that because when somebody angers you, it gets you off your game. You quit focusing for what you're we're talking about or what you're dealing with because now you're mad and you're, you lose your concentration. And so if I'm going to get into a debate with a cult, I'll go for just a few moments and then I'll always insult them and make them mad. No, I will. That's part of my strategy. I had a Church of Christ people here a long time ago. We brought them, invited them in, you know, and we went at it for two or three weeks. And finally, I closed the thing out against one of their guys, you know, who was their big stick, so to speak. And, uh, and I, I had it all planned out. I, I, before I went anywhere to beat him to death, I wanted to get him angry. And all, he, you know, remember the time most of you were here, not all, most of you were alive here, they, they, their whole church came. It was right in this room. And our whole church came. And we went at it for three weeks on Thursday night. Had a ball. And the last night, is he put, they put their guy out, and I took him on to put a closure to the thing. And I hit him with a couple of things that he didn't have very good answers on. And I could tell that he, 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 he so I said to him, I said, in front of his old people, I said, is there anybody here that maybe knows more about this than you do? Because you seem to be having a tough time with this. <laughs> I had him. I had him. He got so flustered, he forgot everything he was going to say. And I, I, I call that my Billy Jack move. You ever seen the movie Billy Jack? Oh, I love Billy Jack. 
But the famous scene in Billy Jack is the fact that he's walking into this park. He's an ex-Special Forces guy, and he's, he stands up for the little guys. Always does. Over the big guys. And he went into this town, and, you know, he's, he's, he's trying to help these poor Indian people down here, you know, American Indians, and, and the big guy in town, he wants to, you know, he wants to bully them out and take their land and all this stuff. You know, just like the verse says, robbing the poor. And Billy Jack's going to stand up for it. So they're going to make Billy Jack pay. Little do they know that Billy Jack can take on that whole city single-handedly. So Billy Jack is, he always walks bare feet. Never wears any shoes. That's because he's going to ready to kick your face in if he has to. So he's walking through the park and four or five guys come at him from different angles. And he's, a, he's got this goofy hat. And he walks in there, never smiles, never says anything. And the big, tough mayor, or whoever he was, comes up to him and he says, we're going to fix it for you, messing with those Indians down there and causing this problem. We're going we're to beat the fire out of you, and then we're going to run you out of town. Billy Jack never said a word. These four guys are all positioned around him, and he starts to smile. The guy says, what's so funny? Billy Jack says, says I'm going to kick the side of your face in in about 30 seconds and there ain't one thing you're going to do about it. And he swings around. <laughs> <clears throat> then this guy comes. Ooh, this guy comes. Ooh, ooh, this guy comes. Yeah, this guy. And he wiped them all out. That's my Billy Jack move when I deal with those kind of idiots. When I looked down to him and I was getting ready to say, is there anybody in your church who knows more about this than you do? Because I was saying to him, I'm about to kick the side of your face. And I mean, one thing you're going to do. <laughs> my favorite line with Jehovah's Witnesses, I've dealt with them all my life. I had two going to come to my door one time. And I saw them coming down the street and I knew what they were. They come up to my door and they knocked on the door. I opened the door and they said, Hi. I said, you guys are Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I'm going to witness to them, but I want to take the fangs out of their mouth first. I want to get them so mad that they can't think. Then I'm going to give them a Billy Jack move. And I said, hi, you guys are Jehovah's Witnesses. And they said, looked at each other. It was a big guy and a little guy. And they looked at each other. He says, well, yeah. He says, I said, well, I'm a Jehovah's Witness too. And he says, well, we know all the Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, when did you become a Jehovah Witness? I said, oh, about 20 years ago when I asked Jesus Christ, Jehovah God, to come into my heart and save me from a burning hell. And the Bible says, you shall be my witnesses, so therefore I'm a Jehovah Witness. And he looks at the little guy, and the little guy looks at him, and he says, well, that's not the kind we are. Billy Jack move. I said, that's the only kind there is. You guys must be phonies. <laughs> they got mad. They got hot. And I gave him a Billy Jack move. <laughs> anger can be a good thing if you know how to use it. Because the moment you get angry for the wrong reason, you lose your perspective. You, you, know, that, you know why some people beat their kids too much and hurt them and wind them in the hospital? Because they got angry at them. And when you got angry, they lost control when they went too far. That's how it works. If you don't have a righteous cause for your anger, then you don't have any limits to your anger. And whoever angers you controls you, so I just use it against those people. 
But anger, anger will never be a good decision in making decisions in your life. Now look at verse 26 through 27 here. Be not thou one of them that strike hands or of them that are surety for debt. If thou hast nothing to pay, why should he take away thy bed from under thee? Now, again, this doctrinally here, before we get to the practical side, it'll be the tribulation period. It's the Antichrist and the Jews who make friends with him. Proverbs talked about this a lot. And he comes uh, finally to take away everything they've got and uh, take everything from them. He takes all of their possessions and leaves them absolutely nothing. Uh, it would, uh, you know, it, it's, it, and we see a lot of this in life even today with what we do. And we use the little phrase, you know, make a deal with the devil. That's what Israel does in the first half of the tribulation period. And that's what a lot of God's people do, even though they suppose they made a deal with Christ. Now, inspirationally, when you make friends with an angry man, someone who is angry with God uh, all, in all his dealings, uh, you'll always lose. You will. That's why I just stay away from them. They're going to be a snare for you. You know, the problem within Christians and churches, and in most cases, the anger that they have towards somebody or something is not really uh, what, you, not what you see is what you get. They're really never angry at the person, but they're angry at God, and they just take it out on that person. And you just stay away from them, because you're always going to lose. When a person is at odds with God and he's angry without a cause, they'll never operate by the principles or the standards of the Bible. And, and you who do love God and want to do right, they will persecute you and make your life problematic. All kinds of issues. It'll be a snare to you. It will, it will take their anger at God. They'll take their anger out at God on you and you'll be taken advantage of without mercy. It happens all the time. And this is why you find people who are very weak, Christians, who can't stand up for what they know to be right because they're afraid they're going to hurt somebody's feelings or offend somebody. You're a prime candidate for this kind of person. And I'm just telling you. They'll take all that you have. They'll make you a servant to them. And when you have nothing left but a bed to sleep on, they'll come and take that. You know what that's a picture of? These kind of people who are angry at God, when they take all your energy and all things that you have, they'll come and take your bed. Not literally come to your house and take your bed, but a bed in the Bible is representative of rest. You'll never have any rest in your life as long as you hang out with these people. There'll always be turmoil. There'll always be problems. When you make friends with an angry man or woman, Verse 27 says, why should he take away thy bed from under thee? Well, it's easy. Because he's angry with God, and because you love God, he focuses that anger toward you. He won't focus it toward God, but he'll focus it toward you. He'll blame you. He'll make you the problem. He'll make you the issue. And he'll always find people stupid enough out there to believe him. Hey, I've had situations in my years in the ministry where you try to help somebody and some guy or some gal will tell this person, you know, don't listen to Bob, don't listen to this, don't listen to that, don't listen to the people that he's put with you. And that person is stupid enough to believe him. I mean, God brought him to this church, God saved him in this church, God discipled him in this church, but some idiot comes into your world who has an issue and is angry, he's going to pull you off task. And you're going to start believing her or him instead of where God puts you. Happens all the time. 
And when a man or a woman is angry at God because you love God, they want you to be miserable like them. So they have no rest or peace. Their life is in turmoil. It just goes from one bad thing to another, from one church to another. They were in this church, then they were in this church. Now they're going to be in another church, and now they're going to go to this church. It only lasts, you know why? Because there's no rest for them. And they want that with you. They want to take the very bed you've got left. I've, they'll take your emotions. They'll take your feelings. They'll take everything you got. And then the last thing you can hold on to will be your peace and your rest. They'll come and take your bed. Make no friend with an angry man. Go back to verse 23 here. For the Lord will plead their cause and spoil the soul of them that spoil thee. If I've learned anything in life in 47 plus years of the ministry, and I've tried to learn some things, made a lot of mistakes, tried to learn some things from my mistakes, tried to look ahead and try to look and be better at what I am. And if I've learned anything in my life is those who are against you and those who without a cause want to hurt you unbiblically, at the end you'll win. There's an old saying I don't know where it came from, but I believe it. I've seen it work. I'm seeing it work right now in my life. It simply says like this. If you sit by the river long enough, the body of your enemy will float by. As Christians, we don't retaliate. We don't get even. We just keep doing the work that God called us to do. Because I believe that at the end of the day, God will defend those who are doing what's right and won't the ones that aren't. God will take and bless in your life and give you the blessings with your family, with this church, with you and your kids and the young men and young ladies that are in here. The, the blessings will just keep coming because of the fact that God, in the end, you always win. When nothing else will tell, when nothing else will tell, time will tell. Just let it prove itself out. For the Lord will plead their cause and spoil the soul of them that spoil thee. In the end, Israel wins. All 6,000 years of the devil trying to destroy them and put them under, making them poor, at the end they win and they get all the riches of the millennial reign of Christ that was promised to Abraham. Your life and my life is much shorter than that 6,000 years. But in this little three score and ten, you take your stand for the Word of God, there'll be a price you have to pay. You should count the cost before you decide to do it. It's okay. Some of us get so focused on what everything is going on around us, we lose sight of the job that we're supposed to be doing. One time, the Lord Jesus put His disciples in a little boat. They went out on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night with a raging storm. And he come walking to them on the water about the fourth watch and came to them and they were scared to death. They, 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 the wind was contrary to them. The rain was coming down. The lightning and the thunder was crashing all about them. The waves were about to swamp that little boat. And when the Lord came down to them, he saw them, the Bible says. I don't know everything that he said to them, but I can imagine based on what he has said to me in my tough times of life, he said, you know what? 
Son, the wind's always going to be contrary to you. The lightning and the thunder's always going to crash around you to try to stare you. The sea billows are going to roar and rage and come over the gunwales of that boat and look like you're going to swamp. He says, you don't have to worry about that. I'm always going to defend you. I'm always going to be here for you. Instead of worrying about the boat sinking, instead of worrying about the thunder and the wind and the light, you guys need to be doing one thing, rowing the boat. You don't need to worry about everything that's going on in the world today. In your own personal life, if you're really plugged into the Bible and want to do what's right, you don't even have to worry about that. What you have to do is what I have to do. We all have to do is focus on one thing in this church. Let's just row the boat. Let's just keep rowing till he comes walking on the water for us. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for today. Thank you for this great passage and its truth and its power. We pray, Father, for the men and the women that are here today, and especially for the young men and the young ladies that you've given us here in this church that are so precious. And I thank you for the older men and women that, that you brought back into my world over the last couple of years that stand side by side with me, helping train these young men and these young ladies, helping me bring them along and, 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 and linking arms with me to, the, for the greatest calling the world has ever given us, and that is to train up young men and young ladies for your service. Thank you, Father, for our church. Thank you for the Word of God that's made it all possible. And thank you, Father, most of all, thank you, because I was Mephibosheth. I was breathing shame, and I could not defend myself or stand on anything for me. You fought for me. You fought for me, you came down, and you defended me when everybody else wanted to throw me out in the world and just run me over. You defended me, and you loved me, and you saved me. And Father, I thank you for the fact that you did for me what I could not do for myself. You took my cause unto yourself. And because of that, may we take your cause unto ourselves till Jesus comes back and row the boat. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen.